All right, I think we're recording. So we should just tell everyone listening that it's not Reza Aslan's fault that the lawnmowers and blowers are outside. They will be done momentarily, we hope. Actually, those guys just follow me around. Oh, they do? Everywhere yeah. you go? It's wherever I go. Yeah, there's a blower behind you there's and a like lawnmower? three guys with a, with a blower <laughs> just blowing Can leaves. Can you imagine that? So uh, um, let's just tell people who you are um, and how you got here. Um, yeah. So actually, you know what? The first time I ever saw you was I'm sure the way a lot of people saw you was on a fo- on Fox News. Oh yeah, what, the, 2011. What, 2011. Tell, tell us that segment real quick in in 140, <laughs> 280 <laughs> characters. In 280 characters. This the the segment that will like essentially one day be stamped on my gravestone. Um, yeah, this was you know I wrote this book about the historical Jesus because that's kind of what I do and um, and it was my first time on Fox, believe it or not. I'd, I'd been booked on Fox before, but the interview had never happened. So you'd like um, been booked and you show up and they're like, yeah, we got to put uh, Sean Hannity on or something like worse, that. Worse, way worse than that. Um, they, you know, they do pre-interviews, right? So yeah, they call yeah, yeah, you yeah, the pre-interviews. Yeah. And, and, I've, and I've done pre-interviews with, you know, almost every, you know, news network. This is actually um, a pre-interview. This I, is a pre-interview. So, sorry yeah, to tell you. Eventually we'll push record. Yeah. Um, and this was for the O'Reilly factor. All right, this is a great story. So they called me and they're like, okay, so, you know, we'd like you to come on the O'Reilly factor and we'd like you to talk about, um, you know, the issue of, of religion and violence and, and particularly Islamic terrorism. And I was like, okay. And then they said, then the pre-interviewer guy said, okay, so, um, so would you say that the problem is with the Quran? And I said, well, no. I mean, look, scripture is scripture. It all depends on interpretation. You know, there's plenty of stuff in the Quran that promotes peace and plenty of stuff that promotes violence. And it's up to the individual, you know, which ones they they follow and which ones they don't, just like it is with, you know, anybody else in any other religion. And he said, right, right, right. Good, 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 good. Okay. All right. So, but... um, but what about the Quran? Would you would you say that the <laughs> that the real problem though is you know with with the the Quran? And I was like, oh, maybe maybe he just didn't hear me. So I repeated myself, and I was like, okay, this is you know scripture without interpretation is just words on a page. It takes someone to actually confront it in order to uh, give it any kind of meaning, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And he said, right, okay. So let me ask you this: if I were to ask you. Is the problem with the Quran? What would you say? I was like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, look, okay, one more time. I'm just going to say this one more time. And I said the exact same thing. And he said, all right, all right, great, great. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. And the car was supposed to come and pick me up at like four o'clock. And I'm sitting there. And it never shows up. And the car never showed. That's amazing. <laughs> Literally, it's, the car just didn't show. It's so funny because people keep people think that... You know, when they see an expert, quote unquote, on TV, or they read an expert quote in, a, in an article, that there's been a tremendous amount of time that's gone into that. <laughs> and more often than not, even in places, reputable places like the New York Times, Washington yeah. Post, it's the first person who picked up the phone. First person who gave you a quote. First person who gave you the quote. But on like Fox News or CNN or MSNBC, it's the person that fits the narrative for the story so the producer that day can go home have a beer and play yep. video games. And that's exactly what happened in this interview, which, you know, you've been on book tours. You know how it goes. You get you get this sheet that tells you these are the interviews you're doing today. Yeah. And what the hell do you know? You yeah, know, yeah. it's like, first of all, there's an unlimited, I mean, really an infinite number of radio shows. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you there's, know? There's, there's and like, now an infinite number of podcasts. And an infinite number of podcasts. So this is... Uh, so you wake up in the morning and it's like, these are the 12 interviews you are doing today. And you don't know. So and so go so fast forward to this Fox News thing. Yeah. Real quick. So, so one of them says one of them says Fox News, and I thought, all right. So you know, just the next one on the list, and I, um, you know, and she, and again, it's that narrative thing that you were saying. Yeah. So the first thing that she says is, you know, um, you're a Muslim, so why did you write about Jesus? And and I thought, oh oh wait. I get it. I get what's happening here. So I was like, well, let me just be clear that, yeah, I'm a Muslim. And I happen to be a Muslim, but I'm, this is what I do for a living. Like, I'm an expert on religion. I write about religion. And she says, oh, okay, all right. But again, that, 
begs the question, why would you write about Jesus if you're a Muslim? And, and it's that O'Reilly thing started happening again where I was like, oh, maybe she just didn't hear the first time. So I'll just say it again because it's what I do for a living. Like this is, <laughs> I write about religion and religious people. I just happen to be Muslim. And, and then it just kept going. And it really, honestly, it's, it's a, I've only seen it once. It's, it's pretty great. It's I excruciating. It, it was, uh, it's excruciating not from your part, but from hers. But it, <laughs> it, I remember watching it. It's funny you say that because I remember seeing it on social media in 2011. And I was like, holy shit, did that just happen? And then <laughs> yeah. I watched it again. And I was like, uh-huh, that just happened. You know what? The thing is, is that it, um, this was July and nothing ever happens in July, you know, at least back then before, you know, we were in this ex- now existential crisis. In July. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <clears throat> and this story just kind of hit at the perfect time, but it became this gigantic global news story where, you know, I mean, I was getting emails from Somalia, you know, I was getting emails from like Congo being from like, Nigeria asking yeah, you for a million dollars asking for a million dollars. And also saying <laughs> that was such an excruciating interview. Yeah. Now I have some uh, money that I would like to give to you, give you. All but I, I just your need account. your bank account. Um, and, um, and it was, it was kind of crazy. And yes, it, you know, it, 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 it uh, obviously, catapulted me to you know some other level but what was really funny to me was how it became this interesting rorschach test for america back then you know in what way well in the sense that suddenly there was this dividing line over whether you were with reza aslan or against reza aslan and it, it, it stopped being about me like by day three by day three it was no longer about me or the book by day three it was about America and journalism and, you know, religion and all of this stuff. And, you know, look, as an academic, you know, you sit back and you think to yourself, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. Like, this is the kind of conversations that I want to engender. And here it's happening, you know, at my expense, obviously, but it was still, uh, you know, a fascinating experience, no question. So do you think that back then uh, there was already, and we're going to get to your book, I promise you, uh, uh, your new book, but um, I'm just curious, do you think that back then there was already the divide that exists today um, between viewpoints, especially, you know, around these topics, or or was it the beginning of it? No, I mean, there's no question that there was deep, serious divides back then, you know, and we're talking, again, we're talking about, I guess, I don't know, what are we talking about? 2013, maybe? Yeah, so 2013, I think. Um, and, uh, you know, we were, we were as divided as we had been in a very, very long time back then. But, but we're the more divisions, divided now. Yeah, the divisions back then were about culture and politics, um, and and religion, yeah. right? I mean, those were the, the the primary divisions. Like the 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 problems that you had with the other side had to do with policy. It had to do with their interpretation of culture, their idea of America, etc. It didn't have to do with reality, right? Mm. Like in other words, this idea that we're having a conversation about you know, whether Nazis and pedophiles are cool or not. Like, is that okay? Like, you know. They're totally cool. They're the, yeah, it's like, like, I thought <clears> we According had, to the president. That's what I'm saying. It's like, I yeah. thought, like, we had all agreed yeah. that Nazis and pedophiles bad. Yeah. And that was it. It yeah. doesn't matter whether you were right or left. And we don't have policy conversations anymore. Do you think that part of that is a result of, I mean, I've been thinking about this quite a bit and over the past year and 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 kind of scratching my head at, at how this divide became so binary. Before I felt like there were there were topics and issues that were binary, but there were a lot that were not, and that there was there was a lot of gray mm-hmm. in between. And I and I think and you know having covered tech companies and social media for over a decade now, and I think a lot of you know when you're trying to have a conversation in social media, and we're going to get to that topic with you in a, in a little bit, but. Um, there isn't there it's it's either you're like I love Nazis or I hate Nazis. It's not like, hey, I knew this guy once and he had a really bad accident right. and hurt his head and he kinda was into Nazis, but now he's not it's like you know there's no there's no nuance whatsoever. Yeah. And I and I wonder if, you know, you look at the number of people that are on these platforms, if part of this is a result of that. 
Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think there's no question that um, most of our social media outlets are naturally geared towards this kind of bifurcation, right? This sort of, you know, which side are you on? And there's only um, two sides. And there's only two sides. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that that's for sure. And that's only heightened um, the political divides in the United States. But I mean, I guess what I'm saying is I'm nostalgic for the days of the political divide. You know, I'm nostalgic of the days when um, my problems with the other side had to do with their policies. This is a conversation I have all the time with people who are like, you know, Trump is terrible, but man, Pence is worth worse. And yeah, Pence is a terrible person. There's no question about that. Number one, I'm not afraid that he's going to accidentally kill us all. So that's that right there is a, is a positive. Unless you're gay. Unless you're gay. Then, then sorry. Then, then you know, that's just how it goes. Um, <clears throat> but I do think that, you know, there's there's something to be said about the days in which you could look to the other side and say, I have a problem with the policies that you are trying to implement. And let's have an argument about those mm-hmm. policies, even if we may not meet yep. in the middle. Yeah. Now... The other side is, you know, is led by a narcissistic sociopath. So it's like there's no, there is no meeting in the middle because this, one side isn't playing in this game yeah, at all. One, one side is not based in reality. Right. So speaking of that, you have a new book out called God. God. Did you get permission from God to use that title? Well, it's actually a memoir, I oh. should mention. Oh, got uh, it, got it. <laughs> <laughs> um, how... Has the all of the things that we're seeing happen with pretty much everything, um, the these divides that we're talking about right now? How have they affected religion? Because I, I and the reason I ask that is I grew up, um, I grew up in England, uh, in the north of England, um, and forty years ago, and I remember as a kid coming of age during all the IRA bombings <clears throat> and. And I was taught very early on that there were people who who believed so strongly in different gods, essentially, in different religions, uh, that they were willing to kill innocent people and each other uh, as a result of that. And I remember being in you know our school sometimes, and you know the we'd, school would be shut down, or, or I was once in Manchester at the mall, and there were tanks that came in and they cleared everything out, and something that, you know, and 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 there were explosions and so on and so forth. And I remember being so perplexed that that was. So important to people. Has technology made it worse or has it made it better? It's made it worse, but let me let me go back a little bit because I think I think the important thing and the most important thing to understand about religion is that regardless of what religion you're talking about, regardless of where in the world you're talking about, religion is first and foremost a matter of identity. It's far more a matter of identity then it is a matter of beliefs and practices. Beliefs and practices are important. I'm not saying that those things don't matter. Um, But I think a lot of people, particularly non-religious people, simply assume that a religious person is someone who just believes the things that their religion tells them to. When in reality, religious people are all over the place when it comes to how much of the doctrines of their particular religion they actually accept and how much they do not. But what is important is that when they, when someone says that they're a Jew or a Protestant or a Catholic or a Muslim or whatever, they are making an identity statement. And it's a statement that has as much to do with who they are in the world, how they understand themselves, how they recognize their, their connection to other people. Um, it has more to do with that than it does to do with these are the things, these are the religious doctrines that I accept and these are the rituals that I take part in. And so if it's true that religion is first and foremost a matter of identity, then that means it's wrapped up in all the other markers of your identity. And that includes your politics, it includes your gender, your sexual orientation, your economic views, your ethnicity, your race. It's impossible to extricate religion from those other things. These are all different markers of your identity, and when they wrap themselves together, they make who you are as a person. And so, as a result, you know, religion becomes both a cohesive force and a divisive force. It's about in-groups and out-groups. And sometimes the in-groups, out-groups are by different religions, 
you're a Jew, I'm a Muslim. Sometimes they're within sects. You're a Catholic, I'm a Protestant. Sometimes they're just based on a certain kind of doctrine. Well, you're an Irish Catholic and I am, you know, an American uh, Catholic. And I think if you first of all begin with that sort of postulate, then everything else makes sense. Then everything else that religion does in the world, good and bad, every all the ways in which religion is expressed, all the conflicts of religion that we all see, all of it suddenly makes sense because it's just people fighting over their very sense of self, their, their identity. And what technology has done, as you know better than anyone, is that it's allowed us to, in many ways, reframe what our collective identities actually are, right? This is a, it's an old sociological issue, right? That um, uh, f from the dawn of time to about, I don't know, two decades ago, from the dawn of time to about two decades ago, the definition of community was the people around you. Yep. You know, it's a, it's, it was a geographic yep, definition. Completely. Maps were based on locations, not that's people. Right. And whether that's your cave or your village or your city or your nation, the point is community <clears throat> meant geography. And what technology and social media especially has done is it has shattered that, that community no longer has any kind of geographic boundaries. You may have more in common with some kid in Indonesia because you like the same music than either of you have in common with anyone in your neighborhood or city or state. And what that has done is that, yes, it's, it's changed the way that we create our collectives, but it hasn't made those collectives any less polarizing or any less divisive. It's just expanded it in some way. So, and it's done that with religion, certainly. You know, the, you, can, you can create an entire virtual religious community now based solely on, you know, your hatred of gay people, for instance, or your, you know, views on a, on a particular... Um, you know, verse in your scripture. So it's created micro communities, so is, but they're just as much divisive as they were before. Are we better off or worse off? I, I'm not smart enough to answer that question. I don't know. We should ask your gardeners. <laughs> we should ask the, the, blower, out the there. blower out there. I mean, we just are, aren't we? <clears throat> like it's it's such a hard question to ask. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's no, it's really interesting because. You know, the promise of technology was always that it would connect us, which I think is, is actually, it has done, um, and that it would give us information that would set us free in many respects, which I don't think it has done. No. I think it's kind of imprisoned us more and more. Um, and but, but, you know, you look in the app store, the number one downloaded app in history is, is the Bible. You know, it's like... Uh, it, you know, um, if you look at, you know, on the Kindle, the number one commented book is the Bible. It's like, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it is doing something to religion, but, but it, it doesn't seem necessarily that at the end of the day, uh, it's making the whole conversation any better. I mean, yeah, you're absolutely right. And, and I was one of those people. It's so funny that, you know, we grew up at a time before there was the internet and before the, I mean, like there wasn't <clears throat> email when I was in college, um, and before there was, you know, social media, and then there was. And so I remember very clearly, as I'm sure you do too, what, you know, being very excited about that promise and thinking to myself, not only are we now finally getting mm -hmm. rid, of, rid of the gatekeepers of information, right, so that anyone can access information, you know, themselves, that's a huge thing, um, but that it's going to create precisely these um, infinite levels of connection. But I think what we all forgot about is human nature. <laughs> and, and human nature is such that we are tribal people. Mm -hmm. We look to um, other individuals who look or feel or act or think like we do, and we create our communities in that way. And what you know, social media has essentially done is it's accelerated that process. So even with, especially with regard to religion, it's created these micro communities. It's fractured religion even more. Hmm. Like it'd be one thing to say, well, <clears throat> I'm a non-denominational evangelical Christian who lives in Pittsburgh. Um, and so essentially, 
you know, there are a lot, there are people around me who who more or less believe what I believe, um, you know, insofar as my theology and all that stuff. But some of them don't share certain other views. The idea that I could go online and find people who think exactly the way that I do, who read the Bible exactly the way that I do, well, it's and it's, who are everywhere. And, and I mean, what you're summing up is also the people that go to Fox News and Breitbart and. The New York Times, and it's it it is something that has uh, that it's fractured everything. Yeah. This is Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. I have a kind of love hate relationship with the holidays. I love that I'll get to spend time with my family and friends, but I also get bummed out that there are people all over the country I won't get to see and spend time with. This year, I've decided that rather than send those folks in other parts of the country cards and presents, I'm going to send them bouquets of flowers, and I'm going to do so using ProFlowers.com. After all, a bouquet of festive plants or flowers from ProFlowers is perfect because it's not the same traditional old gift or card. In fact, it says so much more. If you want to do the same thing, listeners of the Inside the Hive podcast get 20% off any ProFlowers bouquet or plant of $29 or more. All you need to do is go to ProFlowers.com and use the code HIVE, that's H-I-V-E, at checkout. There's lots of festive options to choose from, including their best-selling candy cane roses, which, no, you cannot eat. They're not edible. And you can't go wrong with their classic mini Christmas tree that comes with lights and ornaments. It's perfect for a kitchen, a cubicle, or someone's fancy corner office. So again, listeners of Inside the Hive get 20% off any ProFlowers bouquet or plants of $29 or more. All you need to do is go to ProFlowers.com and use the code HIVE at checkout. Once again, proflowers.com. The code is H-I-V-E. All right, so let me ask you a question. Um, how many books have you written on religion now? Uh, this is, I guess, uh, I read four, book, four books on religion and one on literature. So do you believe that, and I've asked you this before, uh, uh, but I'm going to ask you again, and I know it's probably a dumb, loaded question, but do you believe that there is some sort of higher power up there? Yeah. I mean, if you're saying, do I believe in God? The answer is yes. I think that that question, though, is not very interesting. A much more interesting, much there more... There are s- no silly questions, rather. <laughs> Just silly people. Um, <clears throat> they're uh, the far more significant question. And the question that I'm trying to get people to ask is not, do you believe in God or not? But what do you mean by God? And it's so funny that this word God, which is probably the most variable word in the English language, <laughs> is also the word that everyone just assumes, you know, is, is um, universal in a way, that we all mean the same thing when we say God, and we don't. And so it makes it very difficult for either people who do or who do not believe in God to just simply state yeah, I don't believe in God, or yes, I do believe in God, because we have no idea what the listener it, thinks of when they think of God. But are, are they, aren't they thinking of some sort of higher power up there, or down there, or around there, or whatever? I mean, isn't that the thought process when you, when you ask that question? For a lot of people. I think for the vast majority of people, and this is precisely what the book is about, what they mean by God is a divine version of themselves. And this is sort of what's really fascinating about this process, that when you dig into the the psychological and cognitive um, processes through which the very idea of God arose, what you see is that we human beings have this innate um, compulsion to uh, bestow upon God our own personality, our own emotions, our own virtues and vices and strengths and weaknesses, that essentially what we do when we think about God, and this is whether we believe in God or not, is we create a divine version of ourselves, a a superhuman being with human emotions and motivations, but without human limitations. And God is not that. My God is not that. <clears throat> how do you um, know? I don't know. I but don't this know. Is what? So, 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 so how do you? How, so, okay. So, how do you get to this point where you believe that 
something exists, but the thing that exists is different to each person. Right. I, I mean, what's the what's the pathway that gets you it's there? It's actually not that complicated. I mean, I, I call it sort of the three questions, right? Question number one, do you believe that something exists beyond the material realm? Something real, something palpable, something knowable? Or do you believe that the material realm, what we experience with our empirical senses, is the only reality, that there is no other reality. It's a simple choice. There's no proof either way. It's just, it's an experiential question more than anything else. That's Hugo. Just leave him. He's going to just blow <laughs> blow behind me. He's fine. Hugo the blower is Hugo back. Hugo the blow, <laughs> blower. Um, and Hugo believes that there's something beyond the yes, material realm. Yes. Do you believe that there's something beyond the material realm or not? Is this the only reality or is there some other reality? That's it. Don't define the other reality. That's it. Just do you believe that there's something else? That's not a rational question. It's an experiential question. It's about the experiences that you have had that make you think that there is more than this. Question number one, yes or no? Simple. It's just a choice. If the answer is no, you're a materialist, good for you. There's, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. Go about your life and enjoy it. If the answer is yes, then that brings the second question up, which is, does that matter? Do you care? Do you want to know that thing? Do you want to actually experience that thing? However it's defined, however you envision it, do you want to feel it to to experience it and or is not. that and that's that's church that's the bible that's no we're no. not even we're not even anywhere near religion yet these Got are it. just em- questions of emotion and nothing more and the answer to that again is either yes or no if no okay well then you're you know you're an agnostic and and good for you and that's really the only intellectually honest answer to this question anyway so you know enjoy enjoy your life but if the answer is yes that number one, yes, I do think there is something more. And number two, I do want to feel it. I do want to experience it. I want to know it in some way. Then that's where the third part comes in, which is how do you want to experience it? Now, it does help, though it's by no means necessary to have a language with which to express what is fundamentally an inexpressible uh, experience. And that's what religion does. Religion is just a ready-made set of symbols and metaphors that provides a language to an individual and to a community to communicate to each other and to themselves this ineffable experience that I'm, that I'm talking about, the experience of transcendence, of, of faith, or however you want to say it. And any one of those languages is fine. It's just those languages are nothing more than a means of expressing this thing. You don't need one of those languages. You can experience that same sense of transcendence through nature. You can experience it through your family. You can experience it through, you know, the love that you have for your children or for your wife. You can experience it through a whole host of different things. But that's pretty much it. Those are that's it. It's just about <clears throat> answering those three questions. So once you, I mean, so putting those questions aside for a second, do you? in your research, believe that there is a, given that you believe that there is a God, uh, that there is a reason that we are here? Yeah, I mean, I think that's fundamentally what saying there is a God means. But, so what's the, what, so what, is, what is the reason? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I don't see, know. See, I, mean, I, I think what I would say is, Go ahead. Well, I, I, you know, I, I've gone through through this a lot, and I'm sure everyone listening has has, and and it's a conversation I have with people all the time. And you know, if 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 there's a reason, and you know, are we doing the right thing, and and so on and so forth, and and it's people like it is honestly, you know, people like Donald Trump who make me question if there is mm-hmm. because I don't understand how there there's a purpose behind someone like that. I just, it's, I, it's, I think put aside your politics, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. him as a human being, forget that he, let's just forget he's even president. Right. Yeah. Uh, that, that there can be someone who is so intent or even Hitler mm-hmm. or, or Charles Manson or whatever it is that's, that is so intent upon, upon, upon appeasing their themselves 
uh, and causing harm to so many people uh, and such narcissism and selfishness. Um, it, it just it doesn't yeah. make sense to me that that there's a reason for that. And I get that. And I think that a lot of people would probably agree with that sentiment. I think my conception of the divine is far more expansive than just this, you know, idea of why, why are there bad things in the world or why, why are there bad people in the world? And when I say that, when I say reason and purpose, I by no means mean it in the prosaic sense of, um, you know, the reason is for us to be good or the purpose is for us to be positive. I mean, I think for me, the reason and purpose is a much more, you know, it's metaphysical and it's an emotional, you know, if I were to put it into words, I would say it's so that we um, can know each other and that we can know ourselves in the sense of that the experience of being alive is about more than just the random, you know, occurrences of material matter. You know, the 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 idea that um, you know what what reality is is nothing more than uh, you know a chaos of atoms. That there is an underlying will behind it. Um, and if, if we, we use the words purpose or reason, I suppose, in, in the same way, but, but again, what that, what that starts to make us do is precisely what I'm trying to get people to not do, which is, which is to humanize the divine, to assume... So, so your theory is that there is, there is some reason, there is some purpose, but it is beyond the comprehension of us mere little humans... I mean, I, I, I don't, I wouldn't put it necessarily in those terms in the sense that, you know, uh, you know, God's ways are not like our ways. I mean, those are sort of, you know, trite religious sayings that don't have much meaning to me. What I would say is this, is that what we know is, uh, and this is based on both archaeological and cognitive evidence, what we know is that the religious impulse, however you want to define it, let's define it in the way that I was defining it earlier in this idea of the belief that there is something beyond, um, that that is a universal impulse, that it exists in all people, in all cultures, in every place in the world, and throughout all of time. That in fact, um, you know, as the archaeological evidence indicates, that that predates Homo sapiens, that that is way? an impulse that is an impulse that existed mm. in previous species of humans it mm. existed in neanderthals it existed in homo erectus um and the issue that i think a lot of scholars um grapple with and a lot of evolutionary theorists and and cognitive scientists is why so the question isn't does this exist there is unanimity it's a it's a nobody questions that this is an impulse that exists in all people in fact the evidence now indicates that it's an impulse that we're born with there's been numerous studies um, by cognitive scientists and psychologists that show that children are born with an innate sense of substance dualism by which we mean and an understanding that that the body and mind are separate and distinct. You can you you can replace the word mind with soul if you want to, or with psyche, or whatever. You can replace it with but, whatever but you want to. But we are born understanding that they are two distinct things. We are born with that belief, which means that it's a cognitive impulse. It exists in our brain somehow. So that's not that's not up for debate. What is up for debate is why, and as I outline, you know, clearly in the book, there's been. 200 years of trying to answer that question. You know, why? Why do we have this impulse? Is there, was there some adaptive advantage to it? Did it help us, you know, in, in our, our ancient past to survive in some way? Um, is it part of our human evolution or not? And just to skip to the end of that process, 
um, the overwhelming consensus now is that it doesn't, that there is no reason for it to exist, that it has no adaptive advantage at all. There's no <clears throat> evolutionary reason for this religious impulse. Isn't the religious impulse to, isn't there, I mean, there, I could think of, uh, of reasons. I Go mean, for it. You know, uh, I, I love the, the look that you're giving me now. Uh, <laughs> because but, I, yeah, I'm telling you. Uh, no, go but, for it. No, okay, but so um, uh, I am um, uh, going to be afraid to die because I'm afraid of what could lie on the other side. That this could be right. just what? That's no. right. So fear of death, absolutely. Fear of but death. But isn't that a and isn't that evolutionary? Isn't that no? But it's not an adaptive advantage. There's no there's no adaptive advantage in <clears throat> prehistoric human beings between an individual who isn't afraid to die and an individual who is. On the contrary, it's a disadvantage in many ways. Just to go through the list. I mean, look, the list. We all know the list because we all have our ideas about it, right? Mm -hmm. So people will say, based on a little bit of what you were saying right there, they'll say, "Well, okay, but what about, you know, the fact that religion provides, you know, answers to unanswerable questions?" True, it does. Again, no reason at all to think that that's an adaptive advantage. That that somehow survive helps our species survive. Well, well I mean, here's another thing. I mean, and. and I, I, Maybe adaptive advantage is, is is too strong a term for this, but you know, my I have a, a friend who um, uh, who's from South America, and her family um, uh, is you know they've, they've with like every family, there's problems. There's a, a son who has issues, and a aunt who does this and that, and so on and so forth. And and for them, for the family. The Bible and the church and uh, and God, um, life is is too difficult. It's too overwhelming to try to comprehend and get their mm -hmm. head around. And there is this thing that exists to help them kind of ferry their way through it. And it's almost um, it's almost like a, um, they, without it, they would spin out of control, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. and probably you know that would be the end of it. Well, so you're bringing up three. Three issues about religion. Number one, um, that it provides some kind of moral guidance, first and foremost. So you, usually, you know, through some kind of absolute moral, you know, divine lawgiver. Again, true. Except that the very concept of a divine lawgiver is barely 5,000 years old. And the notion of religion as a form of morality is even newer than that. Forget about going back hundreds of thousands of years ago. We're, even go back to the Mesopotamians or the Egyptians or the Greeks or the Iranians. Their pantheons of gods were not in any shape or form uh, symbols of human morality. No, On they, the they, contrary, they were symbols of fear. They were symbols of again, hope. Yes, but but first of all, they were not symbols of, of hope or fear. What they did was implant either hope or fear, um, and they did so equally. You know, and that this is the second thing that you were talking about is that it it gives it makes you feel better, or as Freud put it, it takes away anxiety in some way, and so that could possibly be an adaptive advantage. That's actually a good argument. That look, you know, there are health health risks to to being anxious, so maybe that's that's the idea. Um, except that religion actually increases anxiety. It doesn't decrease anxiety. I mean, if you think that the entire universe is predicated on whether you make this sacrifice on time or not, that's an, that's an anxious building. It's an anxiety building Unless mechanism. you actually make the sacrifice on time and then you're <laughs> like, ah, oh. finally. The most common reason that people give for why religion exists is because of social cohesion, right? As we were talking about before, that it's a, it creates... Um, a social bond among quote-unquote believing communities that would give them an advantage over unbelieving communities. But again, not only is that suspect view, but for that view to hold, it would so religion would have to have some uniquely adaptive um, social cohesion advantage, and it doesn't. Kinship is how our ancient communities collected each other, collected you know around each other. What you are bringing up, and this is a very important point, what you are bringing up is a functionalist argument. You are saying what religion does, which is true, but that is not an explanation for why religion exists. And it's certainly not an explanation for why religion is a cognitive impulse, why it exists in our brains. And so, the, look, the dividing line on this question right now 
is between those evolutionary theorists who say that the only explanation for the existence of the religious impulse is that it's an accident, that it's some byproduct of some other evolutionary adaptive advantage, something else in our brain that we needed in order to survive, um, developed, and as a, as a process of that development, religion and re- the religious impulse became this echo that we, were, we all have, that we're all born with, despite the fact that there is no evidence that it itself is an adaptive advantage. And again, it's, it's, the, the issues are, are kind of complicated, but it's essentially two cognitive processes, one of which is called um, hyperactive agency detection device, and that's that thing... Now, the, now you're just showing off. Yeah, now I'm showing off. That's that thing that we all have. Do you want to put the have. Wikipedia page away for a minute here? Or, uh... HADD is this thing that we all have yeah. that compels us to... Um, uh, well, the way that I put it is that it's the reason why we think every bump in the night is caused by someone doing the bumping, right? It forces us to give agency to natural phenomena. Uh, and that's definitely an adaptive advantage. Now my dog is I, here. Let me let my dog. dog yeah. Can keep, can keep the the other thing, the second cognitive um, uh, development, uh, is called the theory of mind. And the theory of mind is this other thing that we all have that we're all born with, um, and it's that thing that um, makes us recognize that someone who looks like us must also feel like us. Uh, it actually, I think, turns on in a child's brain like around six months old or something yeah, like that. Yeah, there's been a lot of research yeah. around this lately that, that's been talking exactly about this topic. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So what a lot of cognitive theorists now believe is that if you combine hyperactive agency detection device and theory of mind, both of which are evolutionary processes that gave us an adaptive advantage as we were, you know, deep in our in our prehistoric past, that somehow when those two things touch each other, the religious impulse arises just as an accidental byproduct. That, by the way, is a very good theory. It's a theory, but it's a good one. An equally good theory is where we began this conversation, which is, it's just how we're made that there is a reason for it, that it's who we are, that it's, that it's a mode of knowing that we are meant to have. So um, I know you have, you have to go pick up your kids in your minivan in a little bit. Um, <laughs> Thanks but, for outing me yeah, with the sorry. minivan. I, I, um, uh, sorry. Uh, in your Porsche 911. Uh, um, but I, I have a few more questions. Sure. Um, uh, so do you go to bed at night and put your kids down and kiss your wife and lay there and think, am I doing the right thing here in this game that I'm, you know, that we're all on? Um, Or do you, I mean, is it something that as someone who spends most of your waking hours thinking about religion and purpose Mm -hmm. and so on and so forth, something that occupies your mind? Yeah. I mean, I, I I do think about it a lot. Um, I feel good about where I am right now. I had that's not. I can't say that 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 was true for a lot of my life. Um, I find my deepest spiritual connections, the place where I feel closest to God, however that wants to be defined. And and I should emphasize that I do at the end of the book basically just lay out what I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I believe is. Um, what our ancient ancestors believed. Um, you know, I'm a pantheist. I believe that there is no difference between creation and creator, that God is the universe. Um, that means all of us, all of us are God. All things are God. And nowhere do I experience that reality more clearly than when I'm with my family, than mm-hmm. when I am tucking yeah. my kids in, than when I am lying down next to my wife and sort of thinking about you know, the world and what I've done and whether I feel good about it or not. And more than anything, you know, this book is not supposed to be just kind of an interesting history of the way that humans have thought about God, you know, since the very moment in which the idea first arose. It's also meant to be uh, an argument. It's also meant to be, uh, you know, a a kind of um, sort of 
you know, a, a, an argument for a new way of thinking about God, to stop humanizing the divine, whether you believe in God or not. Stop thinking of God as someone who looks and acts and feels and thinks like us it's, and start thinking about God the way that our prehistoric ancestors thought about God as the animating force of the universe. And I think when you think that way, not only will it lead to, I think, a, a deeper, more meaningful spirituality, but I think that it'll it leads to a better world. I mean, if I... If I see you, if I see you and I and I know that you are God, then I can't I can't delegitimize you. I can't I can't denigrate your humanity because you're God. I can't exploit or abuse nature or the world because nature in the world is God. If you re, if you react to everything around you as though it is divine because it is divine, then it transforms the way you think. So, no, I don't sit around you know, praying to God as though God's some guy who's listening to me and answering my my prayers. I don't, you know, that's not how my spirituality works. My spirituality is fully integrated into the very way in which I understand and react to the universe because the universe is God. All right. So last couple of questions. Um, I'm going to move away from the book for 10 seconds here uh, and talk about your little CNN fiasco because we have to end with on a light note here. Yeah. Uh, so um, uh, earlier this summer, mm -hmm. uh, Donald Trump had done something. What was it that he had done? He, this was during the, um, the terror attack on the, on the Thames where Got it. Um, yes, you that's know, right. somebody drove over a bunch of people and, and, and um, you know they fell into into the water, and, and in the first few minutes yeah. while that was happening, um, while we were fishing dead bodies out of the water, like that's that's where we're talking about when this when this happened, Donald Trump uh, thought that that would be a good time for the president of the United States to tweet, "I told you so," um, and to say that this is why we need a Muslim ban in America, and I responded. That he's a piece of shit. So just, <laughs> so just, um, so just to set this up, you at the time had a show on CNN called Believer. Yeah, the first season was had already uh, premiered. It was a massive hit for CNN. It was the biggest premiere of any original show. That so tell me what. So what happened? Yeah. So I saw that what happened in, in the media. What happened behind the scenes? You tweeted <laughs> this. Did you immediately think like uh, that wasn't such a great idea, nope, or were you immediately not even like a little bit? Okay, so uh, what put my, I put my phone down and took my family to dinner. Um, and by the way, that was maybe the fifth time that yeah. I had called Donald Trump a piece of shit on Twitter. It's just that this time, the right wing media, the Daily Caller and Breitbart, and uh, you know that whole that whole collective decided that they were going to use it as a way to punish CNN. So so you go to you go to dinner, you come home and go to sleep. You go to sleep. You don't even check your phone nope. that night. Nope. You go to sleep and I wake up in the morning yeah. and I've got like emergency emails from CNN, from my agents, from everyone. Um and uh and you know, we we had a conversation and were you, so when you get those emails were you like were you a little nervous or were you just like, eh, okay, well, let's see where this goes? Well, the funny story is, is that when I got those emails, I, I wrote a very long reply, uh, basically, um, you know, not apologizing. <laughs> you know, I wrote this very long statement about um, the fact that the president of the United States is a racist, sexist, lying, lecherous, pathological liar and narcissistic sociopath that... We are in an existential crisis, that our lives are in danger, and that anyone who has a voice needs to be screaming at the top of their lungs because all of history is watching us right now. And um, I was basically told, uh, publish this statement and the show is, is done. And I was like, okay. 
And so then, you're you're home at this point. Yeah, it's, it's Sunday. Keep, and, yeah. Uh, so then, I tweeted on on Saturday. Now it's Sunday. And so what's your wife saying? What's Jessica saying? Oh, like, <laughs> Jessica, what? you know, Jessica, you know, she's just she's she's nervous. She's you know she's freaking out. And, it, and, and what are the what are the Breitbart articles saying? Are they like not very nice? Are they the Breitbart articles were interestingly um, explicitly Islamophobic, right? So the hashtag that they started using was CNN is ISIS. Hmm. Which you know, again, this is good, nothing good to branding. Do with, exactly, this has nothing to do with yeah. Islam. It's just yeah. I happen to be a Muslim yeah. who said this thing, and um, so you know, I deleted the statement and I changed and I, I wrote a statement basically saying, um, you know, this is why I said what I said. I shouldn't have said it, and I apologize. Um, and then CNN issued a statement five minutes later saying they accepted my apology. I'm not really a CNN employee anyway. Um, and you posted your statement on Twitter? Or? I posted my statement on Twitter, and yeah. then they posted their statement um, on Twitter as well yeah. as, a, as a response. And as far as they're concerned, the issue is over. And then Monday came around, and we were back in production. So we were deep in production on season two. I should mention that. Got it. Like we were, you know, we... Who is this coming from Just, uh, at CNN? Is this Zucker all the way at the top? Like who? No, this is... Um, I don't want to name names, but it's essentially the people who run the original series department. Got it. In, at CNN. But it's probably coming. I oh, mean, it's there's coming definitely from Zucker. Yeah, com- yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. It. And, um, you know, Monday rolled around and we're back in uh, production. And by Tuesday, the story was over. You know, there was still, uh, it, was, it was, by the way, it, it never really became, you know, a big mainstream story. I think the only mainstream news outlet to pick it up was the Boston Globe. Otherwise, it was all right wing um, news groups. And this was after the O'Reilly uh, boycott movement and the Hannity boycott movement. So, so it, was, it was their turn. Yeah, it was their turn. They were using it. And they were using. They were doing the same thing with Maddow to fire Maddow and fire Aslan became yeah. this kind of, you know, hashtag. So they, and by the way, it was amazing how all the articles were essentially the same. It was the exact same article just cut and paste into different, uh, you know, right-wing news outlets. Um and then, uh, and you know, it was over and we moved on. And then on Thursday, out of the blue, you know, we're packing up to get on a plane to fly to London to shoot an episode. And out of the blue, Zucker um, just dropped the show. Did he call you? Did like... Nope. He told, he, he was having lunch with um, uh, Lloyd Braun, who's the, the head of the production company that I work, uh, that we did the show with. Um, and he just turned to Lloyd and said, "I'm dropping your boy," and and it no, I mean it it blew everyone's mind. Like it took everyone by surprise. How, everyone what, at CNN. It took everyone at CNN by surprise. Where were you when you heard this? Were you? Did you I was a in fun- a production meeting with the director, and like packing my clothes to get on a flight the next day, basically. And so the news hits that the Zucker has dropped the show. Yep. And then it just kind of exploded again. Well, and then, uh, and he said that he was going to make an announcement on Friday that they're that they're dropping the show. Um, and what he said was, uh, you know, very clearly. And by the way, I've never told this story before. And what he said very clearly um, was, uh, "Be cool, and you'll get the show back." He, Zucker said this to you. No. Oh, Lloyd said this to you. Yes, it it came and, and, down it came down the very long ladder uh down to me eventually which was no hard feelings uh but we have to drop the show and he didn't give a reason though I think I think we now know what the reason was. I mean this was a this was when you know the the first stirrings of the AT&T Time Warner merger was being uh was coming out into the open and uh, even back then, Trump was illegally talking about how the only way he's going to let this thing happen is if they get rid of either Zucker or CNN, you know, punish CNN in some way. And I think Zucker, despite the fact that the show was a huge money-making success for them, decided it's not worth it, and I'll just throw the Trump administration a bone. And he he cut the show, surprising so, everybody. So this is Thursday. So, so and so the 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 language that comes to you is like just chill and you'll get it back in the a langu- little while. It was made it was made perfectly clear to me. I won't I don't need to say by whom yeah, or yeah, how. Yeah. But what I can say is that it was made perfectly clear to me to 
that this is going to be amicable, that, you know, just let's, let's be nice and let's be friendly. And uh, when this whole thing dies down, you can have the show back, you can have the se- season back, you can get paid all the money that we owe you, and it'll, we'll, all, we'll all just end as friends. And then the announcement came on Friday, and it became this gigantic story for the weekend. I mean, CNN was clobbered for their decision, and they should have been. It was a, it was a ridiculous decision. Yeah. Um, and, and then two weeks pass. And, you know, then we reached out to CNN and said, okay, so, you know, let's, uh, well, give us the show back and let's, let's move on. And they basically told us to go fuck ourselves. Did, they didn't use that language, right? The offer that they made was the legal version of go fuck yourself. <laughs> it was, you can't have the show. Yeah. You can't have the format. Yeah. We own Reza Aslan goes around the world exploring religion, so you can never do that again. Um, We own the title. We're not going to pay you a penny that we contractually are obligated to pay you. We're not even going to pay you back the money that you spent. Um, And it was, I mean, we were blown away. Like We couldn't believe it. Like it was such a, it was such a shock to hear that. Now, let me just say that after months and months of wrangling and going back and forth and having the lawyers battle it out and us telling to them this is not a real you know opening offer this is you know a, a joke and we we are taking this as an insult just so you know and them responding you know and it went back and forth for a long time last week uh it finally settled and now we have everything back. We've got the show back. We've got the but not title back. It's ours again. No, uh, they will no, never yeah, show yeah, it yeah. again. So it's ours again. So now we can go and put it up on another platform and tell it. But but I want to say what what I what's important and what is still sort of so dumbfounding to me. I'm not dumbfounded that you know Zucker did something shitty. Okay, I'm not. Yeah. I mean, I think anybody who's worked with Zucker knows that. Yeah. That happens. Um, what I'm dumbfounded by is the bizarre punitive measures that they put. So not only did they cancel the second season, not only did they make this, you know, ludicrous, um, offer of not giving us anything or paying us the money that they owe us, what they, which is just, it's pennies to them. It's pennies to them. Yeah. Yeah. They stripped their site clean of the show. So the CNN app. Has every, is an archive of every show that they've ever done, ever, except for Believer. And they removed Believer from that from their site on the first day of Emmy voting. They essentially embargoed it so that even though they'd already premiered the show, all the episodes, even though they've already done reruns of it, um, they made sure that no one could watch this thing again. All because of a little three words in a tweet. I think... So the, the, this is how it was kind of explained to me by somebody uh, in the know, is that, you know, when you, when you do something to the mafia, they don't just kill you, they kill your whole family. And Zucker is in an uncomfortable position. I get it. He's, he's got a news organization, and he has decided to do original programming with people who are not employees of CNN. We don't work for CNN. Bourdain and Kamau Bell and Lisa Ling and Bill Ware and Morgan Spurlock, me, we don't work for CNN. They bought our show. They distribute our show. We are not journalists, with the exception of Lisa. We're not journalists. Um, And so we don't abide by journalism rules. And I think this has always been a bit of a problem for Zucker, and I think what he did was he used me as a way to send a message to everyone else. And that, that message to Lisa and Bill and Morgan and, and uh, Kamau, uh, I, mean, I mean, not Tony Bourdain, he can do whatever the hell he wants to. Um, but the message to everyone else was, be careful what you say. Don't talk, reli- don't talk politics. Don't talk politics. Just stay in your lane and don't make a big deal about it. Otherwise... I'm going to whack you and your family like I did with Reza. So did you ever send the original tweet of the statement? 
the, the statement that you were originally no. do you have it still maybe I you think should I, you should tweet it i should probably yeah it's long. you should tweet it with a link to this podcast <laughs> let me see if i can find it somewhere all right sounds good well uh reza aslan thank you so much for taking the time um his new book is god a human history um and he is the number one new york times bestselling author of zealot uh, he also drives a minivan and has a group of gardeners that follow him around everywhere. And uh, you're going to see Believer on a on a streaming site very soon. Just don't tweet that the president is a piece of shit unless you've okayed it with the CEO of that streaming site first. By the way, I, I am convinced that if I had called him a piece of shit like two weeks ago as opposed to four months ago, yeah. uh, no one would have noticed. Because at this point... Oh, yeah. everyone It's like a trending you know topic. I mean? yeah. The president is a piece the of shit. The president is literally yeah. a piece of shit. It's a trending topic and, out there. And now it's just, you know what I mean? But whatever. <sighs> On that note, I'm going to go uh, pray to God that this president does not win a second term. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Nick. Take care. Thanks to my guest today, Reza Aslan. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a really nice, glowing, happy, fun review while you're there. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work, my editors at Vanity Fair, and thanks, of course, to my sponsor, ProFlowers. Please support them the same way you support this podcast. I will see you all next week.